You know, any trip, no matter the destination, no matter the length of time, the route, the mode of travel, usually begins with a planning process. And when it comes to motorcycling, it tends to get pretty deep at this point. Which bike is the best? Which tires to mount? Should I take a course on off-road riding before I go? Which mods should I do on my bike, if not all the mods? Now, it's healthy to do some due diligence, obviously. But when you hear a story like the one we have today, well, it, it may make you rethink your planning process and possibly reconsider just how much pre-planning is required for a real adventure. My name is Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manikin. Ted Simon. Austin Vince. Simon Pavey. Brian Field. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Elspeth Bayer. Jansen. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Products is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA. Comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters. Cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com Harold Serrano lives in New Jersey. Before this trip that he just did, he was not a motorcyclist. He didn't have a license to ride one. In fact, other than a few short little rides messing around, Harold had virtually no experience with motorcycles and certainly no mechanical experience with them. But he did decide he was going to use one for his trip so that he could get around easily and cheaply. But what Harold didn't realize before he left, until he was on his motorcycle going up a mountain in the dark, was just how grossly unprepared he was for motorcycle adventure. He did, however, have passion, determination, and a goal. And those three things combined are powerful forces that can overcome just about any trouble, or at least the trouble Harold found. My name is Hal Zerano. I'm from New Jersey, and I'm a traveler. You say you're a traveler. That's what you do for a living? Not so much. As a, well, What I do for a living is all kinds of odd jobs. I've been a waiter. I've uh, worked in uh, business administration, administrative jobs, you know, kind of like here and there, all kinds of, I guess, jack of all trades. But I would say that I, it's all to en- enjoy traveling. You sort of, you, that's, that's what it's all about for you. Just the, the money is just a means to an end. Yeah, in a sense. Well, you just came back from a, a fair, fairly big trip uh, just last year. But I want to talk about before you left. Who was Harold before you left? Like, what, what were you into? I, I know you didn't have a motorcycle. Um, what was life like for you? Um, I would say I was, you know, your average college student, you know. I uh, had some debt. Um, everything was going pretty well, you know. I had a girlfriend. Things were going well with my family. I was a waiter at the time. But um, I had... Uh, Traveled a little bit in Europe for like three months. So that was like my first taste of like being able to travel. And then when I came back, I wanted to finish college. And that was the idea, finish college and then try to go on an adventure around the world. So was it the trip to Europe? Was that what um, what sort of gave you the taste or the, or the desire for travel? 
Yeah. So what I did was um, for my 21st birthday, I had a conversation with a friend to say, let's go to Europe on a, on a Euro trip, you know, backpacking. And he was uh, agreeing with me that we should go and do this. And when the time came to buy the ticket, um, he backed out. But I felt like this is like a crossroads where either I back out or I, I go. So I bought it. And at that time, I didn't have much money. So I bought it with no insurance. So I had no other option but to go. And what was the idea was to be there for about a month, ended up being almost four months. I met people that let me stay with them. I had a cousin I haven't met um, ever, or the last time I saw him, I was a baby. So when I went to stay with him in Spain, that was a cool experience. And I went to France, Spain, Hungary, and Italy. Wow, very nice. And so when you come back from this, that sounds like a great adventure. And you see your friend who didn't go. What was the conversation about? To be honest, for him, his whole idea was, um, or his reasoning for not going was, no, I'm going to stay here. You know, I was, he, he wanted to make money, which I understood. But I told him, like, the money was going to be there, I guess, when we came back. But for him, that was his main, oh, I've got to save up. I'm trying to go move to Florida. So I could, I understood, but, you know, the whole idea was that we were like, yeah, let's go. And then, you know, the excuses coming at the end. So it was just like, I didn't hold it against him, but I, I don't, you know, I, I do truly admire that because I was able to, I guess, see what I was, if I was going to fend for myself or what could happen, you know what I mean? Yeah. And what change did you find in yourself on that trip? from before you left, because you said you bought the ticket and you, you kind of don't know what you're getting into really at this point because your first adventure like that compared to when you came back. I would say for me, it was, I guess, how sometimes we, I ha- we have the fear of missing out. And that was one of the things that I thought about. But when I came back, I mean, it wasn't a long span of time, but people were doing the same things. You know, my friends were doing the same things, just hanging out, watching TV, you know, what we were always doing. And that... And what I realized is we let ourselves, we hold ourselves back in a sense, you know, waiting for the perfect moment or like, oh, I'm going to wait till my friends come and we all, you know, and like try to time it all out. And to be honest, sometimes just go by yourself and I guess you'll you'll be surprised. Like, So for you, when you, you were, when you were going on the trip, you were actually concerned about missing out with your friends at home. Yeah, I, I was concerned of like everything that would I would be missing out on. It was like when you were absent from school that you were always like, oh, I wonder what I was missing or like something crazy was going to happen while I was gone or that's how I felt. So it was always like, oh, what if I leave and like, every, like I can't even think of important moments that I could be like, you know, that was what happened. But like, I guess like partying with friends and, you know, spending time with friends, like, like I said, when I think about it now, I was like, I was missing out on, not that it was nothing, but. I had more to find on the adventure. You got far more out of the adventure than you did, you know, you would have got if you stayed home for that three and a half, four months. No, exactly. I learned more about myself. I went on it, met people I never knew ever in my life. Kind of had that first like taste of like people extending a hand to help. And did that change you for when you came back? Yeah. In what like ways? I, I would say in ways that I wasn't looking more for that, uh, instant gratification of like trying to go hang out with friends and go to a party and do stuff like that. I was more like, you know, I'm going to have a plan. Let me finish school. I'm going to save up. And a lot of people saw me like they would, I guess they would agree, but like, I guess they didn't believe it. So as I started saving for like, you know, the bigger trip, which is 
going around the world. They didn't believe it until I was, I would say like a year and they started seeing, you know, the money saved up, me finishing school, me actually planning this. And they were like, oh, you're really going? And I was like, yeah, it was. Uh, I don't know if you didn't want to believe me before, but <laughs> I'm going to go. <laughs> was that a change for you? Would you not have been the type that would buckle down and sort of go for those goals? Like, like was that a result of the at first trip? Yeah, I would say definitely from that. I would say not that I was uh, part of the crowd or something like that, but I, like I said, I was always very surrounded by my friends and wouldn't do things without my friends in a sense. And that kind of pushed me to be not a solitary person, but to be able to do things on my own or not rely so much on, I guess, um, being left out of a part, like, you know, like little things that we all go through when we're, when we're growing up, like being left out or like feeling excluded, like those all things that like <clears throat> thought I was missing out on, but like I gained so much more. And it's a big deal to go off and do something like that on your own. I mean, it, 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 there's a there's a certain amount of fear w- when you're heading off on an adventure like that. No, of course. I had what I liked the most was that I had some people kind of reach out and you know, hey, I really admire you for that. Like, I want to do that. I would never <clears throat> let people kind of distinguish me from them. So they'd be like, "Yo, I wish I could do what you do." And I was like, "Listen, there's nothing different from me from you. It's it's just go and do it." You know. No, I can't. The money. Save up. Mm-hmm. No, my girlfriend. Bring her. No, she's not going to want to travel. Okay, so you're giving me every excuse for why you can't, where I'm trying to give you every excuse as to like, even if it's baby steps to try and do it yourself, you know? Well, so, and I think sometimes when people say that, you know, they, they wish they could, they don't really, you know, they, they really kind of prefer to do what they're doing. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things. And, and of course, we're very lucky, you and I, and, and probably most people who listen to this, we're very lucky in that we actually have the opportunity to travel because there are people in the world, many, many more people than us who can't travel. You know, they, they just won't have the means. They won't have the, the funds available. They won't have the opportunities to raise the funds, those sorts of things. So we're pretty lucky. No, I would say definitely. I would say, if anything, we're very privileged in that. Mm-hmm. That was one thing that um, people kind of saw, you know, because I saved up my money. I wouldn't really like to speak about money so much when I was traveling because I was in places that they didn't have much. But um, a few people that I was able to, you know, confide in, I would tell them. And sometimes they would just look at me, oh, oh you're rich. Like, damn, it must be so nice. And I was like, no, like, you know, I kind of worked hard for it, you know. But at the same time, like, we have all these opportunities over here to make money and to do so many things. And and, that, it's, and it's not enough money that you're actually rich because when you come back home, you feel yourself with a need to all of a sudden replenish the money. Exactly. But there's always that misconception in different countries where it's like, oh, he's from America. He's rich. Like mm-hmm. I had so many people do that. Like, oh, you're rich, you're rich. And I was like, no, I worked hard for this. And it wasn't easy, but, you know, we are privileged because some people, they barely make any money to make ends meet and they're scrounging. So how can I expect them to go on a trip like this, you know? You already mentioned that um, when you came back from this trip, you were talking about saving up to go on a big trip. At what point did you decide you were going to do another trip? Was it while you were still on the trip or once you came back? Once I came back, I started kind of like planning a a big kind of trip. And as I started researching more and more, I stumbled upon a guy, his name was Graham Hughes, I believe, and he had apparently gone around the world without using an airplane. So that struck me as like, wow, that sounds like a adventure, kind of like an Indiana Jones kind of thing. And in a world where there's not like, in a sense that there's no magic, there's no more new adventures anymore. We just kind of like look at a movie as like, you know, 
this was like my, I was like, you know, this is a way for me to make my own magical adventure, you know, similar to like books, like, and it was kind of sounded extravagant sometimes in my head, but that was what I guess gave this trip the magic, you know? How do you come across a motorcycle as a mode of travel? To be honest, it all happened about, I want to say, not even a month before I was set to leave. You know, I got to say, like, we obviously talk with a lot of people who travel by motorcycle on this show, plenty. And the thought of just discovering the motorcycle just before you go is almost absurd for many people because people spend so much time planning on the type of bike and the type of gear and and what they're going to wear and what they're going to pack and all of that stuff. You did none of that. Yeah, I would say the amount of planning I did in terms of a regular trip, I did, you know, route you know, budget, stuff like that, or a rough draft of a budget. But what you're saying, motorcycle, gear, type, clothing, I did not do any of that. So why the bike? What what, what came about? So I was looking at a, a lot of uh, different modes of transportation and like buses and stuff like that. And I would always see that there was like gaps where like I'd have to walk a few miles or find a taxi and... Or I'd be at the mercy of a certain time frame or schedule. And I was like, hmm. I started weighing the options. I was like, maybe what if I drove? And then I was like, okay, maybe a car. And I was like, ooh, a lot of gas though. Probably tolls. Okay. Uh, and maintenance. Then I was like, what about a motorcycle? And I was like, okay, this looks like it could be, you know, a, a good one. But cons, I don't have a license. <laughs> so it's going to be... A learning curve. That's it? A learning curve? <laughs> you, uh, you, uh, I, I looked at it like that. You didn't even, Harold, you didn't even ride a motorcycle. I mean, had you ever ridden a bike before this? I would say, yeah, I have like, you know, maybe put in a parking lot or like a dirt dirt road a little bit. Mm-hmm. But like, I would say like max time sitting on the bike, maybe like 15, maybe 30 minutes, but at a time, but never hours or for long periods of time or long distances or rough terrain. So did you, did you not see the motorcycle as sort of a dangerous thing that you're going to have to figure out how to ride, how to pack? What were, were all those concerns not sort of bouncing around in your head as you're looking at the, or considering a motorcycle? I did, but I, I, maybe it was a bit naive of me, but I, I guess that was why I chose a, lower uh, cc bike to kind of like okay i can't fly away in this motorcycle and like crash and kill myself but i at least have some speed so i guess i kind of had like that fear but there was that respect for it Mm. which was a a good introduction to each other so you decide you, you that a bike is going to be your mode of transportation how do you actually get a bike so i had went to chile right and so, so hang on. So you didn't have the bike before you left. You, you, you don't have a motorcycle. You fly to Chile and you plan yeah. on getting a bike there. Yeah. So I fly to Chile and I couldn't really figure out on the internet how to buy one or how to figure it out on the computer. So I was like, you know, what? I'll figure it out when I get there. I'm sure it should be easy. I'm sure I'm not the only one that's ever traveled this way. After a bit of figuring out, I saw that I could buy one as long as I had a, a Chilean resident who could sponsor me with an address and I would get my own like social security number for like, it was called the root number and I could legally buy the motorcycle, put it in my name and have all the paperwork for it. 
how do you find someone to sponsor you? So it ended up by chance. I had a friend from high school. She was living in Chile, working there for about a year or two. And she was my safety net, but she wasn't a resident. But she did introduce me to a lot of her friends who were very adamant to help me, even though I I had a cousin who lived there who was going to help me. And so a few things happened that uh, I ended up not getting help from him, but they heard what happened. And she, one of her friends offered to help before I could even ask. And by the time I did all that, we were good to go. Isn't there some sort of pressure for them? I mean, they're sponsoring you. Aren't they taking on a bit of responsibility there? Um, from what I had seen, I didn't see that she was putting on too much of a responsibility since I was putting all the money. She just had to show up and show that she lived, was a permanent resident. I, I guess to, I don't know, I guess for an address or somewhere to send the paperwork because I, I don't technically live there. We didn't really look into that, to be honest. I, I maybe should have. <laughs> maybe she would have gotten into But she completely, seemed completely adamant about the trip. So, you know, she jumped all in. She was like, hey, I'll help you out. I really, I would, like, it's the least I can do. And she, it was amazing. Did that surprise you? It did. Um, especially because um, she had told me, like reached out to me before I even had a chance. So my friend told her what had happened, you know, and I guess her like, damn, like, you know, I want to try to help him out. She was like, I could do it. You know, I'm a, I'm a resident because she was teaching English over there. What do you mean what had happened? Because um, there was like a whole misunderstanding uh, with one of my cousins. I had to bring him a cell phone. And a few knickknacks, but I couldn't bring the knickknacks because they didn't fit in my backpack. But I brought him the cell phone. And he, I guess, was mad and tried to say that I, I stole the knickknacks. It was like a shower curtain and some hats. And I was like, why would I steal that? But he ended up being shady a little bit. And that was my family. So I was like, you know what? I don't want to. Let's not go down this. It's okay. I don't need your, I don't appreciate the, the help, but I'm just going to figure it out on my own. Oh, I see. And you were sort of counting on him to help you out with the motorcycle. Yeah, because that was the whole idea. I was already reaching out. I haven't seen him in years also, but I had seen him when I was like 13, 14 mm-hmm. in Colombia. He used to live in Colombia. So he was like, yeah, I got you. I'm going to help you out. And when I got there, it always seemed like he was like trying to like get money out of me. He's like, oh, do this, buy me this. And I was like, I have no problem with that. But I mean, I'm trying to also figure these things out. And it, it was just always about his stuff. So it's just... Mm-hmm. that's pretty surprising people reaching out to you to help you when they find out that you're into a little bit of trouble there. So you buy the bike and just talk about what kind of bike you bought and then what you had to do for insurance. Okay. So I started going on Facebook, you know, marketplace, started looking at bikes. I found a few ones that I, I knew. So like a Honda 250XR, like old bikes, but like decent condition. And I was looking, some of them were in the few thousands. I had a guy trying to sell me a bike for 7,000. And I was like, okay, no, this is too much in my opinion. So I'm, I guess I started looking and I found one for about a, a thousand and I was able to get them down to like 900, 950. And it was called a Zong Shen. I have never heard about this company. It's a, they have it in Chile, Peru, and in um, different parts around the world. It's like an Asian company. And then they're fairly and popular there? I would say that I've seen a good amount um, more in Peru, Zongshens, but I've seen it like very rarely. People, when I, even when I would travel, like they would say, I never heard of this bike. <laughs> but it was kind of like a, a carbon copy. If I took the plastic off of my bike and then put Honda ones, it would look like a Honda. Mm, I see. So what about, uh, what about insurance? So in Chile, I 
did not buy insurance because I was going, I left literally the same day. I don't know how I was able to manage it, but I bought it. We, we went to a notary. So I bought the motorcycle used from a guy. We were able to figure all the paperwork out. And I told him this is good enough to leave. Right. And they were like, oh, yeah, I think so. Went to the border. They looked at it and they didn't say anything about insurance. Nothing. I went to Argentina and they didn't say anything about insurance either. To be honest, I didn't buy insurance until I was forced to in Colombia. So you've started out on, on your, your motorcycle. What did you expect from the trip? What were you What were you thinking you're going to gain from this? I don't know exactly what I plan to gain, but I looked at it as like um, a test in a sense, like a, like a vision quest, a journey that I was going to go to and enter as like, let's say figuratively as a boy. And I'd fend for myself, hunt in a sense for my food, you know, see what I was in a sense made of. Because at some point, you know, the end goal is to get home, but there's still all these roads, all these towns I have to get through. So I looked at it as like, this is going to be an adventure because we don't know what's going to happen. I can plan as much as I can, the route, the street, and know exactly, and don't divert from the road, but the unknown, the probabilities, who am I going to meet? What's going to happen? All that was just like, the magic that fueled this adventure because it, I didn't look at it like a vacation or like, Oh, I'm going to relax. It was like, no, I, I didn't expect rainbows and butterflies. I expected some hardships. What did I expect specifically? I don't know, but I expected it to be kind of like a, my own kind of adventure of my making. When you left that first day on the motorcycle, how prepared did you feel as you started, as you rode away? As I rode away, I'd, don't really think I was that prepared. I didn't know how to ride the clutch. So as I'm leaving the city at, and stopping at red lights, it kept, you know, going, cutting off because I didn't go to neutral or I didn't know to, you know, I ended up learning to hold the clutch and just rev it, which obviously is not a good thing to do, but that was the only way to keep the bike on without holding up traffic behind me until I got out of the city. And then obviously it was just smooth sailing because I just had to throttle it up to the last gear and it was just driving as fast as I could. You mean the bike was stalling on you? You know, even with yeah, the clutch. Yeah, I, I didn't know how to uh, clutch and and switch gears, and I didn't know to downshift all the way to um, neutral at the red light. So I'd be there holding the clutch and revving it just so that the motorcycle wouldn't turn off. Be, what what I'm thinking though is is it because even if you're in neutral, will the bike not idle? No, it would idle, but I didn't know to do that at all. Right. <laughs> These are all things I don't know anything about. So I guess that added to it. It was like riding a a, a, a horse I found, a wild horse. And it's like, I don't know, but we're going to tame this animal. <laughs> Did it not occur to you that maybe at this point that you've bitten off more than you can chew? Not yet. But it happens later in the day when once I finally leave Santiago, Chile, and I start driving towards uh, Argentina, the sun goes down. So in the daytime, it's nice weather, you know, nice and sunny, kind of hot. But as the sun goes down, it drops very quickly. So I'm driving up. My first drive is going up the Andes Mountains. And there's this, like, I think it's like 18 hairpin turns going up to the mountain. And when I'm at the top, it's nighttime and I'm freezing. This is when I realized I am not prepared clothing-wise. I had a Nike windbreaker uh, coverall covering while I had jeans and hoodie. 
thinking that was going to be enough, not realizing I should have probably gotten thicker, more, you know, kind of Gore-Tex kind of like material. And that's when I realized I was not prepared. So what do you do at that point? I mean, here you are in the dark at the top of a mountain. It's cold. To be honest, I had no other option except to keep going. There was nowhere to stop. I guess at that point, I had already passed the last gas station, so it was just a straightaway until the next town or whatever. And I couldn't stop to, you know, camp or find a place to sleep because there was nothing. I felt like if I laid down or, like, slept on the rocks, I was going to probably die because it was really cold. And I wanted to turn back so badly because I was screaming from the cold. It was piercing, so I was just screaming to get my mind off of it, and it was horrible. And I'm with gloves and my hands are numb. I remember at one point I stop at a red light. There's nobody around. And I don't know how, but I literally just tip over. And I'm like, that's when it was like, okay, this is, I don't know what I'm getting myself into. But I, something kept saying like, keep going, you know, wait until you're literally crying or until you literally physically can't move anymore. And I kept going. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, I'm in a town. Oh, I'm in Mendoza. Okay, we're in Argentina. We're here. Made it. I was supposed to stay with a couch surfing host, but he didn't answer. And it, I mean, it was like two in the morning, so I didn't want to keep ringing his doorbell. <laughs> so I found a hostel. By the time I fell asleep, was in the bed. It was like four in the morning. And I was a little rough, but I made it, you know, safely. And then eight in the morning, I woke up to start preparing to then move to the next town, in, uh, which was like, it was a four-hour drive, so it wasn't so bad, but... I was in the daytime. It was nice, sunny, warm. We're going to take just a quick break, and then we're going to be back with more with Harold. Stay with us. We're just starting to get into the adventure. The best throttle lock that I've ever tried, hands down, is the Atlas throttle lock. Now, in case you don't know what a throttle lock is, basically it's just a device that holds your throttle in a given position. So it's kind of like a cruise control in purpose, except that it doesn't increase or reduce your throttle automatically. That's really something that has to be built in from the factory and is not very common on adventure bikes for a number of reasons. But the Atlas throttle lock is designed to go on just about any motorcycle, very simply, it just clamps on, you can get on in about 10 minutes. It's designed to give you that freedom you get when you don't have to keep your hand locked into position. It's a beautiful piece of engineering, by the way. It's uh, designed and owned by riders just like you, Heidi and David Winters. They came up with the idea when they were on a trip and were frustrated with what they had. It's not only beautifully engineered and beautifully made, it's all solid metal. It's got... um, two buttons on it. That's It's as simple as that. One is engaged, one is disengaged, and it's pretty universal. So you can move it from one bike to the other. You simply set your throttle position, and if you need a little more throttle, you don't have to unlock it. You just twist the throttle up a little bit. It'll hold the new position. Same as decreasing the throttle, you know, if you're going down a hill. Comes with a two-year warranty, and uh, anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. It's called the Atlas Throttle Lock. The website is atlasthrottlelock.com. See and be seen. That's what they say at Cyclops Adventure Sports. Cyclops is known for the amazing lighting they make for us motorcyclists, helping us see and be seen. Now, even if you don't ride at night, an auxiliary lighting setup can make you more obvious to others on the road. And you know who I'm talking about here. 
And that's important considering that most drivers that cut off motorcyclists say they didn't see the bike. Cyclops specializes in all types of lighting for motorcycle, um, including their Evo safety turn signal inserts. I know that's quite a mouthful. Evo safety turn signal inserts. Am I saying that right? I think I am. But in any case, they, they replaced your turn signals with super bright driving lights in the front and super bright brake lights in the back, which also flash back to turning signals as well. But it, it, they're, they're sort of useless. They sit there in a lot of bikes. They don't even illuminate while you ride. This changes all that. And the difference is unbelievable. I've got them on my bike and they command attention because they are super bright LEDs. We've done some episodes where we've had Cyclops um, on the show. We talked about how lighting was made and you sort of get an idea of their quest for quality in what they're doing. And you can certainly see that in the products they, that they make. They also have uh, CAN bus plug and play systems, LED headlight replacements, all on their website, cyclopsadventuresports.com. Don't forget, throw in there that you heard them on Adventure Rider Radio, cyclopsadventuresports.com. IMS Products has been around since 1976. Way back in 1976, over 40 years ago, well over 40 years ago, they started making uh, hard parts for motorcycle racers. They continued to do that through the years, and just about every off-road racer has some IMS product on their on their bike now, especially in the top levels. And there's a reason for that, because they take what they've learned over all of those years and they apply it to everything new they make. The company's always been run by ex-racers, uh, off-road racers, motorcyclists, and it's still that way now. The owner is still a motorcyclist and they stand behind their products. They have a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs, everything from the large ADV-1 and ADV-2, which is a huge platform, really nice for adding control and leverage to your bike, but as well giving you some comfort for the long stretches. So if you're doing that type of riding, if you're doing more technical riding, they've got smaller, more aggressive uh, tooth foot pegs. Their website is imsproducts.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio, imsproducts.com. When you lay down in that bed at night at four o'clock in the morning, you finally got somewhere warm and found a place to sleep. What do you think? I made it safely and it's like, maybe I made the wrong decision, but let's, let's see what else we can do. In what way? Wrong decision. I did not expect to go through all those hardships on the first day. It was I'm sure any any nor uh, anybody would turn around and go home, and I wouldn't blame them because I wanted to go home so badly at points. I was like, I just want to go home, uh, lay with my family, be with them, hang out, like comfort, warmth. I'm here in the back of a motorcycle because I chose to be here. I'm the smart one who wanted to be here, and look at where, look what it got me, or that's how I felt at the moment. Well, you said Vision Quest. I mean, you're certainly starting to experience some of that, aren't you? Exactly. I didn't <laughs> expect to yourself. I didn't expect to experience it so early on. <laughs> well, so day one, man, that's a real killer. And, and I can certainly see that you'd want to turn around and head back. But in the morning, do things look different to you? The morning seemed better because I was relaxed and well rested. Mm -hmm. But um, I guess what was like the thought in my mind was like, well, it can't get any worse than yesterday. And I just, I rode on that wave for pretty much the entire trip. Because you were cold, did you start to look for some gear and, and, and motorcycle equipment? 
I had a good amount of clothes, so I just started packing on layers and layers. <laughs> it wasn't the smartest thing, but it, it it did the job for, you know, for the moment. I also didn't have a face cover like a like a balaclava kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So the wind was just going straight up into the helmet, straight to my face. The visor was foggy. I had to pull it up. And now the wind chills in my face. And now my eyes are cold. My whole face is cold. I, like I said, I didn't plan anything for the motorcycle. Nothing about tools. Nothing about clothing. Nothing about lighting. No, I, I should have, but... Then again, like I said, I didn't know much about a motorcycle at all. When you were planning the trip, did you think about weather while you were thinking of, the, of where you're going, your route? I figured that it was going to, I would say I, I figured, but no, I would say, to be honest, I did not. Because I didn't expect to be in Chile during the dead of winter. I was assuming, I guess, it was going to be, you know, South America, tropical, nice and hot. <laughs> I, I don't know, to be honest, what, what was going through my mind because then I thought about it. I was like, why did I, like, it would, only, it would only happen to me that I would end up in Chile in the dead of winter. What, what month did you arrive? I arrived in May. In May. Hmm. Yeah. What was your mode of travel? Uh, are you staying, you mentioned staying in a, host, in a hostel. Was that the plan to stay in hostels or do you have camping gear with you or how did you do it? The whole idea um, was to use this application I used when I was backpacking in Europe. It was called Couchsurfing. So the application is, um, you know, you sign up. Um, I think you pay like a $20 fee. And from there, you know, you make a profile and you go to a country and you can find hosts in those countries. So I figured, you know what, I'm going to try to line as many people as I can to meet locals and find a place to stay, kind of a cultural exchange. And from that, it helped me in the beginning to kind of like start branching into the adventure. How so? So from there, I was able to travel, I want to say, all the way up to Brazil, to a town called Pelotas, all on couch surfing. So these are people I would message like, hey, I'm, I'm doing a crazy trip on a motorcycle. I'm trying to go home. I live in New York and I want to meet good people. I want to meet different people, great people, different kinds, you know. So a lot of people would respond. Some people weren't able to because they were busy. And some people would be, hey, we can meet up. I can't host, but I can meet you up. And I was like, perfect. So I was able to ride that kind of like up until Brazil. And then I started making different kind of friends and different um, connections different uh groups like motorcycle groups motorcycle clubs and then from there it was like couch surfing that um social media connect and then it just kind of like grew from there how did you meet the the motorcycle clubs so uh me meeting the motorcycle clubs happened by chance and it all started when i met seven colombians in the middle of uruguay in a town called colonia de sacramento so when I was there, I was driving around, you know, it's a small town, so there wasn't really much to do. I had finished exploring, so I went to the beach. There's like a little like, you know, and as I drove, I see the license plates and I was going to keep driving, but I was like, how often do I see Colombian license plates in Uruguay? It's a few countries away. So I was a bit intrigued. So I was like, let me go, you know, see what's up. So I drive, I park next to them and they're kind of walking to their bikes and I'm like standing in the way, like, and I'm like, what are you guys doing? Like, oh, we started out as 11 people 
we left Colombia and the idea was to travel around South America and go back to where they lived. They live in Bogota, in Colombia. In the process, they lost like four people. Two never left Colombia. One of them left in Ecuador and they lost the last one. Like she decided to stay in Buenos Aires to work a little bit to make money. So it was seven of them. And then they asked me, what are you doing? Oh, I'm doing the same thing, but I'm alone. And from there, we just, we went out to eat. That is the exact moment. We are like, hey, let's go eat. They were staying with a host that they met through like motorcycles. And from there, when we were eating, they were explaining, yeah, we were part of this WhatsApp group called My, and it's called in Spanish, Moto Ayuda Internacional, which is like, translates to like Motorcycle Help International. So it's like WhatsApp groups where, let's say I'm going to Brazil I tell the person in Uruguay beforehand, hey, I'm going to go to Brazil if you want to give me a recommendation for the, that WhatsApp group. And they'll give me the recommendation and then I'd be in the Brazilian group. So now as I travel, hey, this is my route. I don't know who wants to help lend a hand. I want to you know, see Rio. I want to do this. And then motorcycle groups would reach out, stuff like that. And it built on there. And then I started honestly putting on Google the biggest motorcycle gangs in the world and motorcycle clubs. I couldn't distinguish the difference between a motorcycle gang and a club. So I just started writing all that and started emailing these clubs. And from there, uh, one of the clubs from Brazil, it was called Abu Tres Vultures. It, that was the word. Reached out and it went off. It went from there. <laughs> So you're just going through and randomly sending off messages to people looking for some sort of response. Do you find that, is is it a fairly good response? I mean, are you writing a lot of messages and getting very few responses or the other way around or somewhere in between? I would say I was somewhere in between. I didn't have any, what I didn't have was any negative messages. Um, either they didn't reply or they would be like, what are like, this sounds interesting. Like, I want to hear more. Like, hey, yeah, definitely. In the next town, come meet this guy. He's the president of this club in this state of Brazil. He'll help you out. And, you know, it just went from there. Like, <laughs> So at first doing the couch surfing compared to changing over and sort of connecting more with motorcyclists, was there, was there a big change in, in your experience for the trip there? And if so, what was it? Definitely, definitely. On couch surfing, I would say it was like more like staying with like family, you know, like I wouldn't leave the house late or I wouldn't come home at all times at night. I wouldn't go out for drinks and come home to a house at one in the morning. I feel like that was, you know, a little disrespectful. Mm -hmm. Not a little, a lot, actually. <laughs> um, whereas opposed to staying with a motorcycle club or motorcycle gang, let's I, like I, I'm going to keep saying that because I don't know how to distinguish the two. Cause some said motorcycle MG and some would say MC. So I was just like, okay. And they were like a camaraderie. I felt like I was with like friends that I had known for a while. Like, you know, everybody was drinking, having a good time. You know, it didn't matter because we were all partying. So like there's that distinction. Like sometimes I stood with families where like, you know, they were my age and it was like I was their son. So it was like, oh, I'm going to go party with one of their kids. And we, that was okay. But like if it was staying with like an older gentleman or something like that, it would be more respectful. Although I did have, you know, certain people that they were just even crazier than I was. And I was like, what they was, you know, in a good way. How about your experience of travel, of experiencing the places that you're going through in the culture, et cetera? Did that change in from staying with couch surfing to going with motorcycle groups? 
I wouldn't, I would say it didn't change in that aspect because the whole idea of the trip was, I guess, to live with locals, be as a local. So no matter whether I was with a couch surfing host or a motorcycle group, they were locals. So I got a taste of, you know, hey, we're going to show you around our town, a little mm-hmm. town where, you know, not many people visit or, hey, let's go eat here. Hey, look at this. And, you know, kind of get an insight that maybe I wouldn't have known otherwise by no, by going with someone else or with a tour. What was your route? Where, where did you start? And, and like, again, I know you're headed home for New York, but sort of roughly, just quickly give us your route. So I started in Chile. Then I went to Argentina, Uruguay, Brazil, Paraguay, Bolivia, Peru, Ecuador, Colombia, Panama, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Honduras, El Salvador. Uh, did I say Guatemala? I don't think so, no. No, Guatemala, Belize, Mexico, and finally arriving in America. Wow. <laughs> that is really exploring. How long were you on the trip? Uh, about 14 months. 14, it was kind of open-ended for you, or did you have a date that you had to be back for some reason? Um, it started open-ended, and I want to say during the beginning of my trip, uh, my grandma, she got really sick. Um, so then it was kind of like, is she going to be there when I get back? And then I kind of had to take like a, a little break when I got to Colombia and I came to visit her because she was, you know, she had cancer. So when I finally took that break to see her, you know, saw that she was doing okay. You know, I did her surgery, like they did surgery and stuff like that. It was like, okay, I want to try to make it back for her birthday, you know? So it was like, that would be something meaningful for her. So when I had came back to resume my trip after visiting her, it was um, about, uh, I think the day before New Year's. So I was like, okay, I'm going to try to plot this out so I can try to get home by June 23rd. And then it was like, it's game time. We're not, we're not going to sit around anymore. Like, not that I was sitting around on the trip, but there were a lot of downtime. And then this time it was like, no more wasted. If I'm going to have a lot of downtime, we go to the next town, next town. So then from there, it was started picking up because... I wanted to kind of surprise her for that. Mm-hmm. You want to be yeah. there for her. Yeah. You stored your bike somewhere and you flew home? Yeah. So my family, we're, we're, I'm from Colombia and uh, my, my biological father lives in, uh, in Cali. So when I had gone to Cali, um, I started talking to my family and they had told me, you know, my grandma's condition had worsened a little and that she had to get emergency surgery. So it was around the holidays. So I figured, you know, just in case because it was completely unknown what was going to happen. I wanted to at least spend time with her because I spoke to people about what was going on, you know, stressing out, like, you know, how can I enjoy this trip with my family's, my grandma's sick and stuff. So finally I spoke to a few people that convinced me, like, you know, this trip's going to be there forever. You can always pick up and go again. But the time you have with your loved ones, you know, it's finite. And when it's gone, it's gone. Mm-hmm. So I figured it was the best time to actually go home, you know, spend some time with her. I was helping kind of like uh, change the bandaging for her her surgery and stuff like that since all my family was squeamish. So it ended up working out that I came back for a little bit. I spent Thanksgiving, Christmas with them and then came back on my trip, recharged, you know, able to get a lot of those stresses out of my mind and ready to go back, re-energized to finish the rest of the trip. Did, did it feel the same when you came back when you to pick up your motorcycle? I felt like I was going back all over again because finally 
one thing that happened on the trip was I was always, you know, think about that, you know, how can I enjoy in a sense, figuratively being in heaven in a sense when like my family's kind of going through hell. Mm. So once I finally went back and, you know, got, you know, saw my grandma and was like, okay, she's going to be good when I come back. Like I'll be able to see her. And I was able to get a lot of those stresses out of my mind. The rest was easy. One thing we didn't really talk about, although it's very obvious, is that you didn't have a motorcycle license, that you weren't licensed really to ride. But but you said there was sort of a, uh, there was a, a caveat there that you, that you sort of exploited when you bought the bike. Yeah, so I didn't know at the time, but, um, you know, in America, we have licenses for driving a car. It says D license. Well, I guess it's the opposite over there because D license is 18 wheeler. And it starts off, A is motorcycle, B is car, C is bus. And then if I'm not mistaken, D is is 18-wheeler. So the only time they ever asked me like, oh, you like, let me see your license was in Brazil. Any other time, they never really, I would show them the license and they would never say anything. But the guy was like, oh, you drive 18-wheelers? And I was like, what do you mean? Like kind of confused. He's like, because you have a D-class license. I was like, yeah, yeah. Like I just kept, I was like, okay, yeah, yeah. Let's go for, let's go with that. That works. And... I never had a single problem with, in terms of license, never had a problem. The only time um, in Ecuador, the paper of proof of sale that I had for the motorcycle, it didn't work for me to get into the country. I had to have the title. Oh, you didn't actually have the title switched into your name then? It did, but it was going to be sent to the root number, which is why I had to have the sponsor. Oh, right. So your yeah. your light or your title for the bike is actually sitting back there where you bought the bike and, and you're on the road. The thing is, she never even got it in the mail either. So I had to call and have her go to the DMV and they wouldn't give it to her. And they, were, they said I had to be there. And you know what she did? She went the next day, called me on FaceTime and she pointed me to the guy and I'm like, hi, I'm the owner of the bike. <laughs> I don't know how it worked. He gave her like the like a printable copy. She emailed it to me. I printed it, laminated it, everything. I went to the border. I showed him the piece of paper. He signed everything. And I was surprised that literally a piece of paper was the, the difference between me getting into the country or not. But uh, I, I was grateful. It's, um, it's figuring out ways to make things work while you're on the road. That's the thing. A lot of th- times things would happen like by chance or like, you know, a little like, oh, like if it wasn't for him turning left or not looking at a certain paper the right way, like I was able to get it like, you know, a pass. Did you run into any other problems at border crossings? Uh, yeah, I did in uh, Bolivia. What happened there? So when I was leaving um, Brazil, I was kind of in like a on a time schedule to meet my ex-girlfriend in Cusco in Peru. So as we're driving, you know, we go to Paraguay, we, we enter Argentina again. This is when I start kind of having problems. The girl tells me like, oh, you can't enter. I, can't, I guess my paperwork wasn't in, in order. I don't know how I got into Argentina the first time, but she said that I couldn't enter. But she said I was handsome, so she would let me in. <laughs> I was like, Hang on, this what? is the border guard? This is the border guard. She's like my age. I didn't even know what she, cause she said in Spanish. So I know Spanish well enough, but some words escaped me. So she said, it is muy simpatico. So I'm thinking she's like, oh, I'm saying, she's saying I'm sympathetic. I was like, okay. And then later I was like, my friend was like, yo, you know, she was saying like, you were hot. Like, I was like, what? He's like, yeah, that's why she let you in. I was like, oh, like, okay. 
<laughs> and then from there, we started driving to Bolivia. But when we got to Bolivia, that's like when the real problem started. So all my friends were able to get their motorcycles in. You know, Colombian motorcycle, Colombian riders, Colombian passports. I get there and I have a Chilean motorcycle. I have my Colombian passport and I also have an American passport. She argues that I can't have a different nationality motorcycle than me and denies me entry outright mm. and tells me I have to go back into Argentina, go the long way around through Chile to pop up into Peru. So I'm like, I'm about to throw up. Like I, this is the first horrible thing that could happen. My All my friends are already past it. I come out and I'm like shaking a little. I'm like, yo, like they just denied me entry. And they're like, what am I going to do? And I'm panicking. But before I could panic, they're like, just relax. We go to the first checkpoint where they check all the bikes. And all my friends are in front of me. The first one gets on, but he has a passenger. So once they check his papers, he's like, yo, Harold, let me get something to drink. So he comes and I'll give him some water. He gives me the paperwork for the first bike. So by the time the, the first four bikes go through, I go and I give him the paper for the first bike. I don't know how, I don't know what. He probably didn't, he didn't read it because my friend's first bike was yellow and my bike is red. And he, okay, you're good. We were able to get into the first town, you know. I was a bit like, okay, like, you know, euphoric. I'm like, okay, what's going on? Like, I, now I'm scared. What if I get pulled over? They're going to ask me for paperwork. And as a joke, my friend was like, why don't we just hitchhike? And I, t I took him completely seriously. So I saw a guy with a pickup truck and I asked him, I was like, hey, can you give us a ride? And he's like, how many are you? I was like, it's eight of us and five motorcycles. I don't know how he agreed to it. We threw all the bikes on the back of his truck. And he drove us like, it was like a three-hour drive, four-hour drive, which would have been hard on the motorcycle because it was all dirt roads. And when we finally passed another checkpoint, they check all the papers again. They're like, all right, guys, give me your paperwork. They check each and every motorcycle. And which is the last motorcycle? Mine. And which is the one that they're just like, have a nice day? My motorcycle. They didn't worry about it. I, I guess. They just, they were just like, they checked every single one except for mine. And they were just like, just have a nice day, guys. It's all good. We, we, we see that everything's in order. How about getting yeah. out of the country? They let you out, no problem, though? I acted like I, I didn't know any wiser. So when I give the paperwork to the Bolivian embassy, they see my passport and they stamp it. And they're like, what about the motorcycle? And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, "That's not it's not registered on our systems. And I was like, for real? I was like, I've been driving this entire time. Like, no problem. And the Bolivian guy, it sits right next to the Peruvian border guard. They sit next to each other. So he just hands, he's like, well, you're not in my country anymore. So he stamps it, hands it to his friend. His friend checks all my paperwork. And I, I guess they have different regulations because he said, this is all good. Stamped it. And all I had to do was drive to Cusco. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is something. Was there any fear of if you get caught? Oh, of course. There were so many. There were so many times that I was like, "What if they pull me over and take? They're gonna take the bike." And I like that whole fear. That was the. I was on edge in Bolivia the entire time. Mm -hmm. But one thing I noticed is when I was the cops for the most part left me alone. You know, there was maybe like once or twice that like I was speeding and like they stopped us, and when they tried to extort money or it seemed like it, I had a helmet cam, and I guess he. He looked at it and I guess he thought it was on because he froze and he told his friend, like, he whispered something. And then he gave us all of our paperwork back immediately and they walked away. Mm, wow. 
Yeah. Did, did you run into any time where you had to pay a bribe? No, surprisingly. In Nicaragua, they took my motorcycle. I wouldn't say, I had like, I would say like a beer, beer and a half. And a friend of mine wanted to, that I met, he wanted to learn how to ride a motorcycle. So he hops on the back and we're driving around. We don't even go a block. I turn, I make a right and it's an alleyway swarming with cops. I don't know what they were doing there, but it was at least like 20 cops. They stopped me, pulled the keys out and said, said I was drunk. But after a little bit of arguing, they still had me on not having a helmet. So they took the bike and I had to go pick it up in the morning. And they were talking like, well, we're going to get money off this guy. But I, I said, no, watch in the morning, I'm going to get that bike for free. So I started talking up to the guy and I was like, I'm going to remember you in the morning. I'm going to come with a sticker for my trip. And he's like, your trip. I was like, I'll explain it all in the morning. I go back in the morning. The guy's about to get off his shift. I was like, remember me? He's like, yeah. I started explaining, hey, you know, I'm traveling around the world. The idea is, you know, to travel with very without spending too much money, meeting great people, locals, you know, it's an adventure. And I gave him a sticker and I was like, you know, come on, help me out. Go ahead. He lets me take the bike. As I'm leaving, the cops stopped the gate and didn't believe that he gave me the bike for free. So he went and checked. And then came back and I was like, I told you. And he was, I remember I have it recorded on a camera because he was like, no, no. I was like, oh, come on, bro. I, you think I'm going to steal it? And it was funny. It was like a whole little uh, spiel that happened because of it. It sounds like you, that's your, your method for dealing with stressful times is you, you find someone to befriend. Is that, is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. I mean, it just happens like that. Or to be honest, any bad times. I guess before I could even like wallow in it, like there was like a silver lining or, you know, let's see what we could do. You know, I tried not to get myself so down in the beginning. I was very hard on myself, but as I started going, I was like, you know, I kind of got into the groove of the adventure. I was like, I got this, you know, I'm going to talk my way into this. Let's see what's happening. You know, you, you got to the Darien gap. How did you get across the gap? So when I got to the Daring Gap, that was a crossroad as well, you know? I was talking to my grandma, you know, she was, um, I was already fresh from visiting her, so I would talk to her almost every day when I was on my trip. And I had two options. I was like, I can either take a boat, but it'll be clandestine. So it'll be like two weeks hopping from little island to little island to get to Panama. But it'd be two weeks, no cell phone contact, because there were two travelers that were traveling through the boats and we couldn't get in contact. We literally thought that they had passed away. We were worried about them. I was I was calling on my own end to try to figure out what was going on. People who were coming the other way, you mean? No, no. They were going from Colombia to Panama. Oh, there, was a, there was a few people in that WhatsApp group that um, we would contact or we, somehow they'd be in the same country. So we'd be like, hey, we should meet up and grab a beer. Like we would talk a little bit. So there was a kind of like a network within the explorers themselves. Mm-hmm. So they were doing it. So I was like, all right, I wanted to see how that was route was going to go. So I was worried or put it on an air cargo ship. Last thing I wanted to do was stress my grandma out. So when I called her, I was like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm at this decision and you can help me do it. I don't want to stress you out. What do you think is better? Two weeks, no contact on a boat or I fly to Panama right now from Colombia in a few days and it'll be like, you know, an hour drive, hour flight and my motorcycle's there. And she didn't even hesitate. She was like, I would really appreciate it if you took the flight. And I was like, okay. So I booked the flight, put it on a, a cargo ship. Um, I mean, a air cargo. I jumped on a plane, went to Panama, 
by chance met a kid who was on the plane meeting his aunt, struck up a conversation with them and ended up staying with them for my entire stay in Panama City. <laughs> Picked up the motorcycle the next day. And by the time I ended up leaving, I went to the, you know, the next town. But it was always like chance encounters that if they didn't happen, I, I can't even think of what the route would have went. Harold, do you look for those? Like when you start a conversation with somebody, is that your intention is, is seeing, well, maybe they can, maybe I can make some contact or does this just happen organically? It happens organically. I don't ever really see people like, hey, like, let me try to connect this guy. Let's see what he can help me with. It was just talking like, hey, can I use your phone? He wanted to use my phone to call his aunt. I was like, hey, go ahead. And in that process, we just started talking because we were waiting to get out of the airport to get luggage. And it was a long wait, almost two hours just sitting there. So two hours standing next to a guy, imagine, just talking. This is my trip. And that goes in its own story. And then they'll tell me, hey, I'm doing, I'm not doing anything close to that, but I'm backpacking or I'm going here for a little bit to visit my aunt. And chance encounters. Sometimes I would just ride somewhere with the motorcycle park and people would be like, see the Chilean plates and that alone was enough of a conversation starter. One of the joys of traveling by motorcycle. Exactly. Drawing and people. especially in a time when it's like, like people my age, they're all about like, for the most part, you know, hostels, like partying, like taking the buses. Or that's what I would see. I wouldn't really see people on a motorcycle. So imagine me pulling up kind of all dirty on a motorcycle, pulling up to a hostel, parking it, walking in with my luggage, just tossing in and like, who the heck is this guy? All dirty. Like, you know, it kind of was like, who's this adventurer? And you felt like you were having more of an adventure than, than sort of what they were. Oh, of, of course. But then there were times where I would connect with them and I would be like, you know what? I'm going to travel with these guys for a little bit. And then there was times that I was traveling with people my age and we were staying in hostels, but by choice. Because I was like, you know, I'm not going to party with them and then go home with a host at like two in the morning, kind of, you know, drunk. I didn't, I didn't want to make those connections. I felt like that was using people and I didn't want to use people. I wanted to actually make connections and have a good time. The bike didn't make it home, unfortunately. Can you talk about that? So I had made it to America, crossed the border. I had, you know, everything was going good. I went to have a brother who lives in Houston and a teacher who lived in Tennessee. So the idea was for me to drive 12 hours that day from Houston all the way to, to where he lived in, I, I want to say Crossville. I guess since I got to America, I was so ecstatic that I guess I didn't think about the oil. I don't know what it was. I don't know what happened, but I'm driving and all of a sudden it had a hard pullback. And then it started, it kept driving and then it just slowed down and never turned back on. It didn't have any more pressure. And I, the closest mechanic was about five miles away and I couldn't find AAA. So I started pushing. I got two miles in and a motorcyclist on a, like a Harley chopper pulled over to the shoulder. And here I, I'm thinking like, all right, now that I'm in America, nobody's going to help me. Like, it's not like in South America where like anytime something, I, something happened, like people would run. I was, so I was already like, I don't think this is going to happen this way. He pulls over. I give him the address for the mechanic. He ties a rope to my motorcycle and drags me all the way there. Wow. Yeah. When we get there, the mechanic says, listen, I'm going to charge you $1,000 just to open it. Not, not anything else. And then I'd have to tell you whatever's broken. 
and the motorcycle that I paid $950 for had a lot of sentimental value. But at that point, it was like symbolic. It was like, this is my time to let you go. Because I would always complain about this bike. Or I would, it would be a running joke. People would see the bike and laugh. And it didn't bother me. But, you know, it's like, oh, they think it was, their their motorcycle was better than mine. And I would, you know, say, yeah, you know, if this makes it to Colombia and breaks down, I'd be completely fine with that. And when it made it to Colombia, you know, I was like, wow, I'm surprised. And I would always talk in the sense of that way of the motorcycle. Like, you know, I'm surprised it made it here. So then when it finally was done, I was like, wow, I'm surprised you made it this far. Like, and it felt like I had a connection with an inanimate object because if it wasn't for that motorcycle, like this whole trip would have never happened. And the motorcycle is still over there in Louisiana. I recently got a picture of it in the, in the back of uh, the mechanic shop. I've been trying to see if I can try to fix it, and re- but it would just be more for sentimental value, you know? You're traveling with very little or no mechanical ability. No mechanical ability. <laughs> right. So what do you do when you get, I mean, you must have had flat tires. I had a flat tire was happened on my second drive. So I, I pull over. I'm in, I'm driving from uh, Mendoza. No, no, no. I'm driving from San Luis to, to Buenos Aires. It's supposed to be like a, I think like a nine hour drive, something like that. So I start off good. I pull over, you know, use the bathroom. And when I hop on the bike again, um, I'm driving and I'm like, why is it wobbling? Like really bad. And I look and the back tire is completely flat. And I'm like, what am I going to do? I look across the street and there's a tire shop. (sighs) But the guy who changes the motorcycle tires is not there. So I, I think, let me, let me try. Let's see what I, let me, let me try to change it. The guy who, Works there, I guess he'll help me if worst case scenario, he thinks I'm doing something wrong. So I pay very close attention to everything I'm taking out as I remove the back tire. I changed everything for my first time. I thought I did a pretty good job. I was back on the road and slowly learning little things. And that same day, my chain popped. And luckily, somebody pulled over to help me, a kid on a motorcycle. And he's like, hey, you have a toolbox. I'm like, what? I was excited. I'm like, oh, wow. But it's just as soon as I was excited, I was like disheartened because when we opened it, it was completely empty. There was no tools in there. So it was perfect that he stopped because he helped me pop the chain back on with his tools. Oh, the chain just fell off. It didn't break. The links didn't break. No, no, it didn't break. It had just popped off, but it was tight enough that I couldn't put it on with my fingers. Right. pushed it on. So he helped me. And that's when I started learning, okay, I'm going to need these kind of tools. So I kind of made a mental note of what he had, you know, some wrench, it's some, a monkey wrench. Uh, no, not a monkey wrench. Uh, I don't know the name of the wrench that has the two sides, different. An adjustable wrench? Not an adjustable one. It has two already set sizes, one on opposite ends. It's a spanner. Okay, spanner. You see, I don't even know the, the <laughs> terminology for these things. Well, I got well, one of those. <laughs> I mean, it could be a combination wrench. It depends, but it sounds like a spanner combination wrench, something like yeah. that. So I just started, you know, here and there, going to stores, buying, you know, little adjustable wrenches, you know, Allen keys and stuff like that. And, you know, made a made a respectable little toolbox for myself. Did you gain some mechanical knowledge along the way, having to do your own repairs? Like, do you feel a little more competent now? 
Oh, definitely. I can yeah. change the oil myself. Uh, I would be able to change the air filters. I could open up, take the whole tank off and like do small things like mess with the carburetor. But when it got to into the engine, I would observe a lot of the times the mechanic, but I never had the confidence to actually go in myself. When the bike quit, does that start in the trip for you? I mean, it certainly changes your mode of travel. I know you get home anyway, but um, do you feel like the trip's sort of over at that point? Um, I did feel like that at one point. You know, I had my family kind of like, hey, you know, it's done. You know, they were already trying to buy a flight from New Orleans back home. And I was like, no, like, relax. And they were like, I'm like, whoa, like, they were rushing me. I was like, listen, I'm going to be home. You know, what, what's the rush now? So I was supposed to meet up with a few friends in Florida. I mean, they had told me to come drive there and meet them, but it was a little too far. But the bike failed out, I had to guess, at the right time. So I took a Greyhound to Miami, where my friend lives. We all spent like a weekend, a few days together. And then a friend of mine who lives up with me in New York, we rented a car and did six-hour shifts each to drive the rest of the way home. Just nonstop. Yeah, nonstop. So he drove the first six. I took a nap and then he woke me up. I drove six. He took a nap and then I drove like the last like hour or two. When you get home after you've sort of settled in for a couple of days, what's that feel like? I mean, you just came off this amazing adventure, just incredible things happening all the time. What's it feel like to be back home in New York? It felt like I never left. (laughs) (laughs) Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Um... I would say a little bit of both. Um, It's just like always like, you know, when something's, when you're currently doing something, you're always like, oh, it feels like it's never going to end. And on the trip, I was like, this is never going to end. And then as the trip got closer, I was like, this trip is going to end. And like, it made me appreciate, you know, that like we can try to make things last forever sometimes. But in a sense, it's going to take away the magic or the significance of it. So for me, it was like, you know, this was like a span of time that I was greatly appreciative for. And now that I'm back home, as quickly as it went, you know, I have to also remember to not forget it because we kind of have some short attention spans. I have myself, when I'm reading my journal sometimes, I'm reading and I'm like, like sometimes disheartened or like maybe down on myself sometimes. And then I'll read this and I'll be like, you went through this, Harold, and it'll give me, you know, the motivation. And it's just like, I went through this. So like, you know, it kind of gives me that inner strength. And it like, like I said, it it sometimes feels like I never left, but I know I went because I have my pictures and my videos and my journals to show that I did and the connections I made. And as quickly as it was, it ended so quickly. And now we're here. How has travel changed you? And And in particular, the motorcycle trip. Because yeah, I know you mentioned that you you feel different about things. You you sort of had some sort of systemic change. I would say the topics of things that I would say changed could be endless. Like there were times where, you know, I, I would say before I left, I would complain about a lot of things. Not to say that I don't complain still now, but I always try to have that introspection or try to think about it. Like, you know, things I have went through, seeing people that had harder bigger hardships than I did who were happier than I was or who had less than I did, but were significantly happier than the people I knew back home. So for me, it was always like, 
always intrigued by what that was. And as I became to travel and travel, I realized it's, it's not about, I guess sometimes back home, everybody wants to like try to make as much money and it's all about success and the number of how much you're making it. Nobody ever asks like, are you happy? You know, everybody's like, what do you do? How much do you make? Like already comparing it or what I assume is in, in a sense to start comparing each other and, when I was traveling, people were like, weren't worried about that. Everybody was just trying to have a good time. And I felt like I was connected to a magic that like, it's up here as well, but it's very scarce up here. And down there, it's like uh, everybody's connected. Like everybody was, for, at least for me, I felt like everybody I met was supposed to be on that, on my path for a reason. Like I felt like everything was fated, fated to happen. Like from, like I said, chance encounters or like, do I make a left or do I make a right? And me making a right and meeting a person at a corner. And then it's like, what if I make a left? And then I think about it and I'm like, oh, I could go into a rabbit hole because I, you know, I wouldn't know. What would your friends say they've noticed about you when you've come back, since you've come back? I've had some friends be a little critical where I've had a friend outright get mad and say like, hey, you think you changed like out there, like, you didn't change. And I was like, listen, I don't expect you to understand because you didn't go on this trip. So I, I, how can I get mad at someone who doesn't understand where I'm coming from? And then other times people would, I guess, when I wouldn't accept certain things anymore, like I guess negativity or just in, in people being ingenuine, when I wouldn't accept that anymore or any fluctuations in like how genuine someone is, like they took offense, like, oh, why you don't want to be my friend anymore? It's just like, there's nothing against you. It's just, I just feel like that energy was probably a source of a lot of the stress I had before. And I just prefer if, <laughs> if I didn't have that around me anymore. And some people, that's like offensive to them, I guess. You mean you've, you've lost friends since you've come back? Yeah, I would definitely say I lost friends. I hold my friends up to a higher standard. I wouldn't, ex like expect to be friends with someone who wouldn't look out for me or who would let something happen and oh well oh well that means that those are just friendships that are based off um instant gratification or like having a good time and when stuff gets hard they're not the type of people that will stick around and i would feel like in a my age or people groups like the their friendships are very superficial where it's like oh there's two parties, but one is at a cabin and the other one's at a mansion. Somebody would say, hey, I can't come to your party. I'm, but go to the mansion one where like whatever's the best option, people would always choose that. Where in my opinion, it kind of seems like it's like, I guess, using people. I could be wrong, but like in my thought process, by getting rid of like people who I thought were just looking for a good time and not actually trying to be genuine or actual friends. It bothered me at first, but. I feel so much better that I, I, I don't think I'm crazy by thinking that. <laughs> so th these are friends that you've sort of walked away from more than have them just walk away from you. I mean, you, you've decided they no longer suit your style, I guess. Yeah. Um, and this is friends from years. So they were like, how can you just end it? And I was like, listen, like for the past few years, like when I actually think about it, what, what were we really doing? Like, when I did see you every few months, it would be us drinking and us saying, remember the high school days? Remember this? And it's just like, yeah, I do. But what are we doing now? Nothing. 
Did, did the bike gel with you in, in a certain way? Did you find that it changed your adventure other than the obvious transportation thing? Did you find that um, you, you sort of discovered something that you didn't expect with the motorcycle and traveling by motorcycle? Liberty, freedom. But you could get that with a car. You know, you could say the same thing with a car. Is that specific to a motorcycle? I would say definitely specific to the motorcycle. And the car, I, ha- I when I was driving home in the car, I remember like telling my friend like, you know, this is awesome. Like all the windows are d- up. I have that nice AC. I have music. Like with the motorcycle, I felt like it was, a, of course, yeah, you know, there was the liberty of the air in my face, the wind, the sun. There was times that I would drive and just start crying and be like, why am I crying? And it was just the music that I was listening to, the landscapes, the mountains looked like they were paintings. It was just like, like I said, it was just like a magic. Like I was on a horse on like an adventure, like no, nothing was stopping me. And whenever the motorcycle would have a mechanical problem or something, I'd be like, oh, we're stuck here. Not in a bad way, but like, oh, trip's, trip's done right now. And then the minute the bike was fixed and I was back on the road, it was me howling at the sun, woo, going down the mountain going to the next city, just loving every moment of it. And I never felt like that in a car. It's an amazing feeling. There's no yeah. doubt. There's the, the bike is a, a feeling you just can't get with a car. Hey, you, you've talked a lot about serendipity through our conversation. And, and one of the things that was also serendipitous was that a friend bought you a journal and that led you to keeping a journal. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so my friend, she's always been, uh, her and her father have always very been like, people that I can have uh, thoughtful conversations with. And she would always kind of mention like, yeah, you know, you should journal. And I would always like, okay, that's just a good idea. But as a surprise, she gave me a journal before I left. And she's like, hey, you know, I don't think you're going to buy one. So I figured I'd buy you one. <laughs> and she gave me a journal and I felt, she was like, yeah, I wasted a good amount. Like, I think she was like $40 for the journal. And it was like a black moleskin journal. So I was like, I didn't want to make it to waste. So I started writing like how my thought process went. Like, you know, what am I thinking? What am I like? As if I was having like the inner monologue in my voice. And it just went from there. It became like something to talk to. And then as I wrote it, it felt like I was talking to someone, whether it was talking to myself or my maybe my kid or someone in my family. I don't know. I always wrote it in a sense where I was talking to someone who I don't know. That was how it kind of flowed. So did that journal, did you fill it up and end up end up getting more? Yeah. So once I filled up that first one, it ended up lining up perfectly from when I took my break to go home, to go visit my grandma. So that one, I was able to close that one and save it to the side and then got another journal and filled that one up as well. So I was able to get two journals, which coincidentally were able to be split in part, kind of like a South America and then a Central America. It's kind of noteworthy that you're writing in a journal nowadays when most people, you know, tap on their computer or on their tablet or whatever for making notes and things like that. Is there something in the act of writing in that journal that you think was somehow better than typing it out on a a keyboard? I don't know, because I had a laptop with me, but I guess sometimes thinking of taking out the laptop, opening up the programming typing it all up, I guess sometimes just seemed like too much. And I guess just having the journal there, I, I'd be laying down and I was like, you know what? I'm just laying here. Let's write about our day. And it, it just, 
I guess, put pen to paper, it just made it so much more real. It kind of like, as I read the journal, sometimes I can kind of picture myself back there writing it again. There's something uh, like, I mean, it's analog. Is there something visceral about that, that I can picture you sitting in some place, you know, with, beside the motorcycle writing in the journal. And I can imagine that when you're looking back at those words that you've written there, that there's probably a deeper connection, don't you think, than, than if you had rattled away on the keyboard and you're looking at this sterile uh, digital page that's on your screen. Yeah. Made it more raw, I guess. I didn't have a chance to polish up my words or have spell the check. computer spell check me or correct things. Yeah. So... It was sometimes writing stuff and I would read it and I'm like, what did I write? <laughs> but it kind of also kind of gave it that like ruggedness. Like, you know, there's a few pages that I'm kind of dirty because I was kind of outside sometimes just laying in the ground, just writing stuff. <laughs> and now you're using those journals to write a book about the adventure. Yeah. yeah. So it kind of worked out that like, I guess I was writing my journal in a, like a conversation kind of way. So as I started typing it, you know, obviously fixing up some of the grammatical errors at this point, but it, it just flowed. And as I went from there, I just started kind of like picking certain people's brains, you know, tossing like a page here or there and like, let me know what you think. And people are like, what? Like, so their interest in it, you know, kind of like got me like, okay, I think I got, I got something in my hands right here. Something that could be probably maybe big or maybe small, but if it at least speaks to somebody, at least one person that in my opinion is enough. What would you hope that somebody will get from your book? I hope that they would understand that to be honest, there's nothing distinguishing me from them. People would always say, I wish I could ride a motorcycle plot twist. I didn't ever had a license. I learned on the road. So I always try to like shut down any excuses. Cause you know, that's always the main obstacle. Oh, I wish I could ride a motorcycle. People would say a lot. People traveling hostels. Listen, I don't have a license. I learned as I went. You know, obviously it's different for everybody, the risk you want to take, but, you know, don't think that, oh, I'm so much better than you know. I had the exact same knowledge or just, we're all afraid. It's just, just go take the walk. Even if you don't want to run, walk, take a baby step and those baby steps add up. Harold, great to sit down and talk to you and hear your story. I think it's a, it's a unique story. and very interesting. Thank you very much for your time. No, no. Thank you very much, Jim, to you. I really enjoy this conversation. Anytime I get to talk about my trip, it just reinvigorates the the magic. And it's just like, you know what I do? I, I have to keep working on this like book or this is something that has great significance. And the whole idea is to, you know, the book would be to show people the emotional side, things we go through, hardships, you know, whether it be with family and stuff like that, but also tying those things in and going on your own adventure, making your own significant story, you know, connect with people because in a sense, that's what all this is about. Serrano from his home in New Jersey, already working on his next adventure, by the way, which he says will be a cross-country one staying in the United States. Harold is on Instagram at whereisherald, and we have that uh, link for his social media, as well as some photos from Harold's adventure in the show notes for this episode on our website, adventureriderradio.com. 
Okay, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, MotoBreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks, of course, to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much for being a part of this. Now, don't forget, we have another show called ARR Raw. It comes out once a month. You need to subscribe separately for that, and like Adventure Rider Radio, you can find it anywhere podcasts are found. And if you haven't done it already, we would love to get a five-star review from you on iTunes or wherever it is you find your podcasts. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name's Jim Martin. Thank you very much for being a part of this. I'll talk to you next week. Hi, this is Elspeth Beard and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.